pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. We thank you that you are gracious to give us your word, to lead us and guide us in truth. And uh, we pray this morning, Father, that as we encounter you in your word, you will find us um, moldable to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if y'all keep moving further backwards, I'm just going to come on down and uh, stand right there in front of you. So, anyway, just thought I'd mention that. When I was in the military, courtesy of your tax dollars in the United States Air Force, uh, from time to time they would let me know that I was moving to another place. And one of those places they decided to move me to was to England. And I thought, well, England's not so bad. I mean, in the Air Force, you could have gone to places where, you know, the culture and the language are so completely different that you, you kind of had to be uh, a really aware and really invest in getting to know, for example, the language. But I thought, you know, England, they speak English there. I can go there. I can get along in England. But I discovered quickly what Oscar Wilde wrote in The Canterville Ghost. He said, we have really everything in common with America nowadays, except, of course, language. George Bernard Shaw has been credited with a remark that goes something like this. Britain and America are two nations divided by a common language. And trust me, when I got there, I found that to be true. What gets you most is the colloquialisms, the local expressions. And England, though it's a small country, the United Kingdom, though it's a small country, Wales and and Scotland and Northern Ireland and England, even there's regional variations in the kinds of expressions they use. And when you hear them first time, the first time you go, huh? And so I just want to share several with you that I heard. When you go to check what we would call checking the mail, you don't check the mail, you check the post. Um, chuffed means very pleased or happy about something. So this morning, if you were really happy about the fact that the sun came out, you were chuffed. Knackered means really, really tired. Cheeky, a little rude, a little disrespectful, but usually in a way that's kind of funny or cute. Narky a word that has onomatopoeia about it. It kind of sounds like what it is. It's a word for being moody or bad-tempered. If you're bad-tempered, you're narky. Cracking. If something is really, really good, it's cracking. And sometimes it's redundantly so. It's cracking good or excellent. They don't have parking lots in England. They have car parks. And lorry is not the name of a girl. It's what they call a truck. And the last one that we're going to focus on this morning that launches us into this passage in the Gospel of Mark is, I don't give a fig. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's a euphemism for something else that's slightly more risque, something we probably wouldn't say in church on Sunday morning, but it's not. It has its roots way, way earlier than something that might be risque or, you know, even vulgar. I don't give a fig. But Christians are supposed to be people who do give a fig. And we're going to see how this rolls out in this passage today in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14, then I'm going to skip down to verse 20 and read through verse 25. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1573. As we explore this passage, we're going to find out that Jesus calls us to be people who give a fig and express that, yes, with three words that begin with F, fruitfulness, faith, and forgiveness. So listen, 
Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they, they as Jesus and the disciples, were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So jumping down to verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So what's the first F in this passage? It's fruitfulness. Verses 12 to 14 and 20 and 21. When Jesus approaches this fig tree, he's looking for fruit. Now, it seems a little bit tricky because, as verse 13 tells us, it wasn't really the season for fully ripened figs. Although, a fully leafed out tree could have had little, not quite ripe, early green figs. But it wasn't, again, the time for ripened figs. But So what's going on here is that Jesus is using this tree to make a point. It's a word picture. It's an illustration. It's an acted-out parable, a story with a point. It's a visual picture of God's displeasure. It's kind of like a worship drama. This is not the first time in the Bible that this kind of thing happens. In fact, the Old Testament is peppered with these kinds of visual dramas, if you will, the acting out of a scene that's supposed to remind the people of something in particular or something that's particularly important. In fact, if you spent some time in the book of Ezekiel, and I commend it to you, if you spent some time in the book of Ezekiel, you will find out that that prophet Ezekiel, over and over and over again, had to kind of act out these parables, act out these word pictures for the people of Israel. Let me give you one example. Ezekiel chapter 4. God says to Ezekiel the prophet, Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Do you get the picture? Ezekiel has been called by God to set up this little model of the city of Jerusalem under siege from outside attacking forces. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. So I just point this out to you to show you that over and over and over again in the Bible, there's kind of these acted out parables, these acted out uh, ideas that uh, are supposed to speak truth to us as we think about them and think about the implications of them. For example, in the New Testament, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish, what's that about? Is that a a hunger solution program that Jesus is implementing for the people? Well, he does feed them lunch, but primarily it's to demonstrate the abundant provision we have in Christ. Ultimately, it's to show to us that Jesus is the one with power to accomplish what he said he's going to do. So, 
in the passage in the Gospel of Mark, the tree looked like it was bearing fruit, but it wasn't. And so Jesus says, as he acts this thing out, he says, fine, stay that way, and the tree withers and dies. It's an ongoing visual aid. See, the next day when Peter walks by and he sees the withered tree, he goes, "Uh uh-huh, I remember now that Jesus was looking for fruit and he didn't find it. This account in Mark reminds you and me that we are supposed to be bearers of fruit in the kingdom. We are supposed to be bearers of fruit for Jesus because there are consequences to the lack of fruit bearing or lack of fruitfulness. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. This theme is woven throughout the Bible. That people who have a genuine relationship with God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, are supposed to be people who exhibit that relationship in the actual conduct of our lives on a day-to-day basis. The Bible calls this bearing fruit. Now, here's the thing. Usually, when we think about those things, when we think about those things, we think about fruitfulness in kind of performance terms. And I've said this before, as Americans, we love this idea of the self-help proposition. So when we hear about bearing fruit, we go, aha, what do I have to do? How can I accomplish this? What will go on my resume? This will look really good. People will be impressed. It's all up to me. But the truth from the passage is that it's not all up to us. It's not all about performance. Because notice there's another important thing in this passage. There is a second F. Faith. Faith. Verse 22. Jesus says, have faith in God. That's a pretty straightforward proposition. In fact, we could spend hours just on this one sentence. You don't have anywhere to be at 2 o'clock this afternoon, do you? So we'll just press on. Have faith in God. We don't have faith in our personal ability. We have faith in the divine capacity of God working in us and through us. And again, as rugged Americans, as self-help experts, as performance people... We think, aha, we can do this. And I'm not diminishing the impact of our own personal contributions. What I'm saying is what the Bible is saying. That what energizes us to do the things we're supposed to do, what empowers us to be the people of fruitfulness that God calls us to be, is the work of God in us. Jesus says, verse 23, Truly I say to you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Verse 24, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. 
Here's a very important thing to understand about this idea, that it is faith in God's work that empowers us to accomplish his purposes. The object of our faith is not ourselves. The object of faith is God. And what is the reach of that faith? It's two in verse 23. This is impossible. Say to the mountain, get tossed into the sea. We were in Colorado recently, and every morning when we woke up to go see the grandkids, we stepped outside the hotel, and there in front of us is the majestic array of the Rocky Mountains, capped in snow. Every day we saw that. Now, can you imagine saying to one of those mountains, yeah, I don't like where you are right now. Why don't you toss yourself into the Pacific Ocean? Well, if you did that, people would look at you like you're slightly off your rocker. They might advise some mental health attention. And so Jesus is saying here, listen, get over putting your faith in yourself. Put your faith in the God who can accomplish whatever he chooses to accomplish. And I've been going at this Christianity thing for a while, and I think I'm just beginning to get a glimpse of what it's really all about. And it's packed into this passage. And one of the things I think this passage teaches us is that it's better for us to reach for the impossible and risk occasional disappointment than not to reach at all. I love watching baseball. And I gotta tell you, I get annoyed with football, mostly because it gets in the way of me thinking about baseball. It's just wrong. So I'll be glad when all this hoopla is done. And I can focus again on what's really important in life. Who are the Red Sox gonna get for their next manager? So I love watching baseball. I love going to the park. I love the ambiance of the game. But let me tell you what I have loved more than that. Playing softball on a church softball team in the local town league. Let me tell you why. From my perspective, though sitting in the stands with with 40,000 people and cheering for your team is a great thing, Actually being on the field in a game, even if the game doesn't have World Series connotations, is way more fun. It's more fun to be in the game than to watch the game. I don't care how much of a crazy fan you are. And trust me, I've seen some crazy fans. I've lived in New England. Those fans are wacko. They've gone off the edge. They need help. But even the craziest fan, trust me, is not having as much of an investment in life as the person who's actually in the game. And that's what this passage is saying to us in this notion of faith. It's get in the game. Say to God, all right, God, I'm signing up. I'm in. You tell me what to do, man, and I'll do it. And so in verse 24, Jesus says, God's going to respond to these expressions of faith. Now, God is not a trained monkey. I went to SeaWorld in San Antonio a couple of times, and they had this really great show 
where this trainer worked with trained seals. It was hilarious what they got these seals to do. But God is not a trained seal to jump on our command. God is the one who wants us to come to him and say, God, we're invested in what you want us to do. We have faith in you. And we remember that all of our prayers are subject to God's sovereign purposes. Job chapter 13, verse 15. You remember the story of Job, right? He had a horrible, no good, very bad day. Yet in chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says this. We don't see it all accurately. He says this. For now we see only a reflection. Sometimes it's translated dimly. As in a mirror. And when we're finally with him, we'll see face to face. Now we know in part. Then we will know fully even as we are fully known. Do you see what he's saying? Have faith. Get in the game. Tell God, God, I'm here. I want to accomplish your purposes. I'm praying boldly to accomplish those purposes, but I get that ultimately you're in charge. You're in charge. And what I think is an interesting thing about this passage is that Jesus links these two things, fruitfulness And faith, he links it to a third F. It's forgiveness. Do you see it tacked on there at the end of verse 25? Because what Jesus is saying is forgiveness is an essential component to our capacity to exercise faith and be fruitful for God. A lack of forgiveness gets in the way of all of that. I love the internet because you can see some really interesting things, including some things like this. Uh, Channel 5 in Chicago, December 2008. A bank robber solved his own crime for the authorities. Thomas Infante, who was 40 years old, I am not making this up, was arrested after the fifth, third bank at 4017 West Lawrence Street was robbed. He was arrested because he went in and put a demand note in front of the teller that said, give me your money or I'll kill you. She gave him the money and he walked out, but unfortunately, he had put the note on the back of one of his pay stubs. (laughs) Which had his address on it. So they went and knocked on his door. Hi, Tom. You want to come with us? Stupid, stupid thief. Incompetent thief. But there is a great thief in our midst that is not incompetent. In fact, this thief is an expert. This thief is you and me. It's us. And the object of our theft is our own joy. And let me tell you how we steal it. We steal it through a lack of forgiveness. Joy is not stolen most often by circumstances. Joy is stolen when we steal it from ourselves because we will not forgive. A lack of forgiveness, it it cripples our personal walk with the Lord. It cripples our walk together with the Lord. What are we called to do? We're called to be people who forgive. Forgiveness prompted by our memory of God forgiving us. 
Forgiving each other, Paul says in Ephesians, just as in Christ God forgave you. Can you imagine? Your whole laundry list of idiocies and stupidities and illegalities and uh, sinfulness and my whole laundry list that probably surpasses yours, all of those things Christ took on himself and God forgave us. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, forgiveness keeps no record of wrongs. If we're keeping a record, we are wrong. It doesn't matter what cute name we give it. And Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5 that forgiveness is an active thing. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Forgiveness is not a game of let's pretend. Forgiveness is not a minimization of the hurt of a wound. Forgiveness releases a genuine debt. Forgiveness is supernatural. If we believe that God has the power to forgive us, then we must believe to forgive us. Then we must believe he has the power to enable us to forgive. And that's the part of the connection between verses 22 through 24 and 25 in this passage. If mountains can move at his command, he can move us to forgive and enable us to accomplish forgiveness. And by the way, by the way, forgiveness is not dependent upon the degree of the wrong. Let me give you two examples of this. Do you remember back in October, just last year, 2019? Can can you remember last year? Do, Do you remember that there was a last year? October 2019. Amber Geiger, do you remember this story? She was the Dallas police officer who walked into somebody else's apartment and shot him and killed him. And so she goes on trial for this. Rightfully so, she broke the law. And they get to the sentencing phase of the trial, and the man who had been killed was named Botham Jean. His brother, Brant, got on the witness stand, and he used his victim impact statement. Get this. He used his victim impact statement to tell the court that despite what that police officer had done, what he had taken from her, his family... If he, she's sorry, he, he wanted them to know that he forgave her and wanted the best for her. And there's this video clip that went viral on the internet. You, you know what that means, right? Viral on the internet. A lot of people saw it. Of him asking the judge, can I give her a hug? And he walked down and he hugged and embraced her. And it wasn't one of those... Pastor Howard hugs. <laughs> it was a real life, get it on in there, bear hug. How can that happen? Brant told her his main desire for her wasn't for her to go to jail, but for her to give her life to Christ. See, forgiveness is not a function of the degree of the wrong. Forgiveness is a function of our obedience to the call from God to forgive just as in Christ we have been forgiven. Pastor Laura and I watch um, the PBS NewsHour usually. And um, they have this 
thing on the PBS NewsHour called our uh, spectacular moment. And so you get these people rambling on about their spectacular moment. And usually I mute it because I just am not interested. But this one we watched. And those of you who can remember this iconic picture from the Vietnam War of the young girl running down the street after her village had been napalmed, her clothes had been burnt off of her, she is burnt, screaming. She talked about her spectacular moment. And she walked through the years and years and years and years of pain physical, pain mental, that she had experienced as a result of being a victim of a napalm attack. She moved to Canada. And, and the, 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 the investigative reporter was interviewing her listening to her story about all that pain. And he said to her something like this, you look remarkably at peace. You look remarkably serene. What enabled you to get to this moment? You know what she said? She said, I found Jesus. I became a Christian. And I realized that just as God had forgiven me in Christ, I was called to forgive those people too. She said, I used to have an enemies list with a bunch of names on it. Now I have a prayer list with the same names on it. That's what forgiveness looks like. And that's the linkage in this passage that Jesus talks about. It's not just about figs on a tree. It's about a picture of the power of God in Christ to enable you and me to be people of forgiveness. Now, I don't compel, I don't twist arms, but if you are sitting there in a position of unforgiveness, then something is amiss. And we all need to move toward Jesus to become the kind of people that he has called us to be, people of fruitfulness, faith, and forgiveness. People who give a fig. Join me as we pray.